Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. In this episode, I had a conversation with Karen Gosby. I consider Karen to be a friend and kindred spirit, and I admire her deeply. Karen and I share a unique bond with each other in that psychologically healthy people bore us. And yet, rumor has it that the next DSM revision will include a new disorder entitled, quote, Psychologically Healthy Disorder or PhD for short, another ingenious discovery, adding to the growing list of diagnosable disorders we didn't even know we had. Karen and her three children lost their husband and father, George Gosby, to suicide in 2017. A headline from a 2017 Globe and Mail article reads, quote, what can we learn from the suicide of George Gosby? End quote. Subtext, Gosby was wealthy, outgoing, and well-connected. He seemed to lead a charmed life. Why would he throw it all away? Well, in response to this particular Globe and Mail headline, I would say two things. First, how trite. And second, and this is my opinion, I believe an individual's well-being is predicated on how he or she internalizes stimuli received from the external environment to be wealthy, outgoing, and well-connected is somewhat an irrelevant preamble to the question of why he would throw it all away. What was unknown to many prior to George's suicide was he struggled for many years with mental illness and substance abuse. Through those years, Karen was a victim of both physical and emotional abuse. She chronicles her journey in detail in her book, A Perfect Nightmare, My Glittering Marriage and How It Almost Cost Me My Life. I highly recommend you read the book and or share with those whom you think may benefit from reading it. Karen has channeled her lived experience to become an advocate and community leader, working to improve the mental health care system. She is the co-chair of the Mental Health and Addiction Stewardship Group for the City of Calgary and was a member of the Government of Alberta's Mental Health and Addiction Advisory Council. Karen is not resilient. Karen is anti-fragile, and she is definitely not a Karen. And now I bring to you Karen Gosby. Karen Gosby, it's so nice to see you. Um, we ran into each other, I think it was last week, very briefly. But um, and thank you for joining me on Confronting the Madness. How, how are you doing today? I'm great. Yeah, it's a beautiful day in Calgary, and uh, I, we just I just had the first city, the Calgary um, Mental Health and Addiction Implementation uh, Group Leaders Group, and so it's good. Woke up got the day to a good start, you know, very hopeful that it's going into implementation now for the next uh, iteration, which is two, three, five years. And I'm spreading, spreading the word of getting awareness out there. What I'm talking to you now. I read your book yesterday. Um, 
all in one shot. Like I, I stayed up till two in the morning. Um, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to share the title because I, I highly, highly recommend it to, um, anyone really. Um, it doesn't even have to pertain to, um, addiction or mental health or, or domestic violence, but, um, the title is a perfect nightmare, my glittering marriage and how it almost cost me my life. Um, and so I read that book yesterday, Karen, and I thought, it just made me reflect on like every single conversation you and I have personally had because, you know, we've talked about a number of things both personally and as it relates to the mental health care system, but I was not, I think I was my ignorance to your story, even though I kind of knew it superficially um, was really telling when I went through the book and read what was like two decades of you grappling with what is such a, such a complex and challenging situation for yourself. And so um, uh, first of all, you know, kudos to you for having the, the strength and courage to, to share what is such a deeply personal story. Um, and I also really liked what your, your note was on the insert. Um, just talking about, it being dedicated to those who have been silenced. May you find help and the strength to start a new chapter. And, you know, I, I presume that's in part why you wrote the book, but also um, was it, was it a cathartic experience for you as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it absolutely was. And I, I talk about this. I don't know if I've ever told you, but I knew I knew it was so difficult because when news of Georgia's suicide, um, you know, was made public, it was met with shock and disbelief from Calgary mm-hmm. and beyond. And he, you know, sat at tables where he was making public policy at a provincial and at a national level. And he worked with provincial leaders and, you know, Stephen Harper, Justin Trudeau, they all... Mm-hmm weighed in, um, whether it was on Twitter or in, in articles. And and it, it was such a shock. And we were, from a family perspective, scrambling to find help for him all the time. But we were literally waiting for the day it would happen. And, mm-hmm. and I just, from my observation, everybody had some sort of thing going on at home that they weren't really entirely being um, truthful or not truthful or honest or having honest conversations about it. And and it, it struck me at the funeral when everybody was coming up and just kind of going, oh, wow, and sharing their their story, which was person after person after person, that mm. it takes a funeral for mm. somebody to feel comfortable to say, oh, yeah, hey, and um, be able to relate. So I knew you could only go up from, from here. And I started to have kind of, you know, a conversation here and a conversation there. And and I had um, told, I'd confided in someone that not only was there was the mental illness component of it, but there was domestic violence as well. And, and I didn't really even call it that at that mm-hmm. point. I, you know, I said there's a high degree of control. And, and I was told by two people that if I came forward with that story, that um, I would be discredited and that people would think that um, my genuine interest of wanting to make it easier for people was more self-serving because I was trying to uh, tarnish 
his reputation and, and it wasn't my intent at all. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and in hindsight, I'm super, uh, grateful that I did have that, that, um, advice because I think it would be true. And mm-hmm. I don't think people would have taken me seriously because a lot of conversations I end up having to have are, um, a lot of people that are, um, you know, sort of in that, that, uh, position of power and control. And it's, deeply threatening that uh, not only is a system that, you know, that they're making decisions around that they don't truly understand, but that sometimes they can behave in that manner too, that people don't really understand about. So that's why I did a tribute to um, people that were silenced. Cause I just, I, you know, and I think it's part of the story quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause that's the reality. <laughs> I mean, there's so much to unpack there. Um, and you said 30 minutes is the sweet spot for podcasts, but I'm sorry, but <laughs> given my um, long windedness and my interest in um, you as a friend, but also now reading this, um, your, your account, I, I saw, I was just perusing through um, Amazon and this, I was trying to describe it in my own mind of how I felt after I, I read it and it, I felt it was different because I, I knew you, but I knew you from like two, 2018 onwards in a, it was just a different context than I think people over the last 20 years would have known you with George. But um, Elizabeth Renzetti said, um, your book is a chilling portrait of the ways that abuse can be hidden behind a glittering facade. It's also a compelling story of a woman learning to navigate pain, mental illness, and trauma until finally becoming an advocate for her own strength and healing. And I thought that was quite um, a beautiful way to, to, to position it. And I, I want to just take a step back and say something else from a, your bio perspective, but also just personally after reading the book um, and just knowing you as, as you and nothing else. Um, you know, you're, you're, you've now become a, a influential mental health advocate. Um, you've now become an influencer of public policy yourself through the work you've done with the governor of Alberta, sitting on the Addiction and Mental Health Advisory Council, the work you're doing with the city of Calgary, um, and as a, as a speaker uh, sharing your story. So, um, you know, y- you in your own right have become a very positive advocate for change in a space that I'm very passionate about. So I just want you to know that. And the other thing, you know, a lot of what you shared in your book was around, um, I guess, George, your husband and his, I guess, diminishment of your intellect or intelligence as a, you know, some sort of manipulative, um, power move but you know from my perspective you know every interaction i've had with you i've always thought of you and you use the word hypervigilant in your book like that, that you had hypervigilance when you walk in a room and you kind of can sense everything that's going on but um i always saw you as somebody with extremely high emotional intelligence you've always been a very good listener a great connector and your intuition has been very strong. And so uh, when I read all those, it, it just really hurt for me to, personally as a friend to read that and think, 
I didn't really know any of that, even though we've had those conversations. So I just wanted, I guess, share that with you um, at the onset. Maybe just talk about your journey and story for those that may not know the story. First of all, I do want to say thank you. Um, you said some pretty incredible um, compliments to me and like the high emotional intelligence. And, you know, that honestly is, is um, it's a huge, huge compliment to, to be told that and not know where I came from and know how much that means to me, because, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you are really worn down. And that's like the, the last thing that you really think that you have the vigilance though, unfortunately comes from being in, in um, situations where there's a lot of trauma. And Mm -hmm. I definitely had that my entire life. And it's a resilient coping mechanism that actually gives you a lot of great skill, skill set. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think that's probably why we've connected too, right? Because you know, when people have that, when you're in the room and and, um, you know, that you can sort of rely on them to a certain degree. So I, I feel the same way. But now that we're over our little love fest. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, let, let me just be clear that I, I would never say that to, um, I don't think I've, I've said that to another guest because I've been advised that um, being too um, loving to your podcast guest is, is nauseating to some of my listeners. So I try to avoid that intentionally, but with you, I made the exception because um, I wanted you to know that from a genuine place of, of, of truth. So, but yes, let's, okay. let's, okay. let's move okay. on. So from... For the listener's sake, let's move on. But, <laughs> but I mean, I can sort of build into how, how that did happen. And in, in, you know, my mom suffered from postpartum depression after having me and, it was the volume generation. And so she's married to a doctor and it was just, you know, that typical seventies where um, she wasn't dealing with what the real issues were. She'd mm-hmm. been abused as a child and she ended up um, attempting suicide when I was 12. And she went into the psychiatric um, hospital that is exactly the same when I went in in out with uh, my late husband, George. Um, I'm trying to think of like, it would have been around 2000, in nine-ish over the span of that till 2017, he was admitted twice. And so, you know, it for a while and it was exactly the same experience. It hadn't changed at all. And that to me was shocking because um, I remember when I was 12, when it happened, I remember thinking there is no hope, like absolutely no hope. And, and where does a person go? And yet my mom was where she was supposed to be. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And I just think, I remember thinking, there's no way. Like, and so my mom got over what she got over. She got the help. She, uh, I tell this, like, um, didn't have addiction issues. She had severe depression dealing with everything because she can manage to have a relationship with, uh, with alcohol and it's not a problem at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, you know, as I was groomed to be hypervigilant, having been raised in that, um, that family setting, and it wasn't entirely my mom, there were attitudes, there were seventies, like, um, the patriarchal expectations Mm -hmm. that were put on the family system and a girl versus a guy, you know, being raised in that era. And so come to when I'm 18 or 19, 
um, going out in the world and, you know, you go to university and it's to get the MRS and, and, you know, knowing that I don't want to do it, but wrestling with the fact that um, meet, I meet this guy that ends up being very familiar, dated a lot of really nice guys and, um, you know, lo and behold, I'm pregnant and uh, I'm married. And now I'm sort of using the coping skills that I knew from my childhood into my marriage, which gets progressively worse. And I, you know, it was a combination of me making really bad decisions and him making bad decisions and us both having very familiar toxic behaviors that we thought were normal. Mm-hmm. And as they got marginalized and worse, I um, realized that this little, you know, visit I had in 1982 and when I was trying to find the help for George and didn't even really think about myself and the children, that the system hadn't really changed. There was a lot of different uh, literacy and verbiage mm-hmm. and understanding. We knew that it came from childhood experiences. We didn't know that back then. But with all that foundational knowledge and like, what were we doing with it and what outcomes were attached? And I just like, I just constantly kept scratching my head and saying, we can only do better. And I guess from me asking those questions and having my experience is what ultimately um, pushed me to do better. And, you know, that's, that's why I'm here right now and trying to sort of shed the light on, on what's going on. That's, that's a, Yeah, that's quite a a stark kind of comparison when you go there when you're a child and then you go there as an adult with a different person you're trying to help and nothing has changed other than the the nomenclature or the expanded um, amount of diagnoses that are all probably the same anyways. And so, yeah, that's that's that says a lot about our system and um, how it's it's I mean, it's really not evolved since you know, they deinstitutionalized uh, acute mental health hospitals and moved them into the community. Um, and we talked about a mental health care system, but it, it really doesn't exist. It's just really a, a fragmented, fragmented set of, you know, previously existing acute care inpatient beds um, structured in a different way. But so just, I, I just want to not gloss over your story, but so George Gosby, um, for those that don't know, uh, was uh, by any measure one of the most influential people, uh, businessmen in the country. Would that be fair to say? Well, I, you know, he, he definitely, I, I think what his real calling was, was politics. He really liked it. And he got stuck into the investment banking and he started to make a lot of money with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think if he was, um, if he was m- mentally uh, equipped and healthy, yeah, he would have been a, an unbelievable politician. And so um, he knew a lot of people like uh, Jim Flaherty, who was really good friends with him. And he talked to whatever prime minister, a lot of MLAs, MPs, like he just, he, had these conversations that influenced a lot of policies that, and and it was oil and gas and, you know, the stuff that were his domain, like what he was doing banking in. So, I mean, he he was powerful, but there were people that were more powerful than him Mm -hmm. and not as outspoken or not, you know, they didn't announce it like he did. Right. 
and so I guess he's a powerful, influential business and community member with this public perception as being charismatic and charming and very intelligent person. Um, but the, he had that dark side to him, which um, really manifested itself through the use of alcohol and, and underlying mental illnesses. And so maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, and I, I the, the text messages are just, um, that was, that were sent as I read through the book was just so jarring for me to, to read that I just, I couldn't, I just couldn't imagine the amount of, um, stress and anxiety that would put on a person, but, Maybe just talk through the evolution of of your relationship, and you know, I, and I, you know, I, you said in the book too, like, you know, people are probably wondering why I didn't leave at a certain point in time. And for me, I never, I never once questioned your rationale for not not leaving the situation because there are so many complexities to it that, including. Um, a question that you asked in your book around can you just ab abandon someone who is mentally ill, which is just a, that's a fascinating question that we can maybe put a pin in, but just talk through the evolution of your relationship with, with George and, you know, how his mental illness and, and use of alcohol and other substances really derailed um, his his life and and your life and and everyone around him. So, I, I mean, he definitely had uh, patterns of addiction, uh, and it, from a mental illness um, or health umbrella, it, it, you know, he would have had signs that um, you know you don't like to to. Um, call out because if anybody has those signs, it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be your, your future. It just, mm -hmm. it was the choices or it was like how it manifested in himself, but he did the binge drinking when he was young. And then he, um, it became sort of more of a controlled uh, socialization with amongst the community and amongst our, our friends and stuff. The abuse was there right from the, the onset, but I didn't see it. I didn't recognize it. He isolated me. He, um, you know, he was in charge of everything, the finances, what I was wearing, you know, um, and those I think are real red flags that mm -hmm. I, I was not aware of. And then as his mental illness and his addiction progressed and those two don't always have to coexist. Like, right. you know, people, yeah. And I, I want to make that clear because people can be abusive and not be addicted. Mm -hmm. Most people that are addicted though, there is a degree of abuse. It's emotional abuse, right? Because you're, you're neglecting the other person, in the relationship and yourself quite matter. You're being abusive to yourself, but, but the whole notion of why I didn't leave, like as, as he was tightening up his illness and his um, addiction, the abuse was getting worse too. And I, I think intuitively I knew if, if that um, the threats were coming in, if I just picked up everything and taken the kids and packed up my white Range Rover, I mean, I can't mm -hmm. go to a shelter, but if I had done it and the, the name for me where I was at that point is called functional poverty. I talk a, a little bit about that in the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I, you know, I, at that point, I, I'm in that highest um, degree of possibility of of having like serious danger help to me um, happen to me. And mm-hmm. I didn't know this, but that's why I wanted to come forward and tell people that you need to have a plan. You need to be aware that if you're being isolated, you're financially controlled, where you're being told what to do, what to say, that those are, even though they're not, you're not physically getting knocked around, but those are um, big, they're, they're flags that, that you're in an abusive situation. And if you do decide to do something about it, you're increasing your chances that that now is going to go to a higher degree of abuse Mm -hmm. and and that's why i didn't leave and then Mm -hmm. the other thing is is once you do leave you are dragged through the legal system which is really set up not to be in favor of someone that finally decides to pick up and go and um you know especially if you're trying to get away from someone that has a lot of influence and a lot of money oh yeah and i mean the flip side to that as well which you talk about in the book uh, quite a bit is so you, you're at risk um, your your children may be at risk or are at risk as well by extension but then you have your husband who is threatening to kill himself repeatedly if you leave and so there's that added layer of um, which I, I I just I stayed up all night thinking about that as well as and to your the question of not only can you abandon somebody who is mentally ill, but when someone is putting that on you and you leave, which you would be in your right to do, and then they do kill themselves, it's just, it's a burden to, I don't know how you would make a decision. Like, it's just such an impossible position to be in, I guess. And so I don't even know how you internalized those continual text messages about um well it was really manic in, in this like in the amount of abuse and then apologies and then um the threat to, to kill himself and like how how did that in terms of red flags first come across to you well so the threat of suicide if you leave, that's a degree of control. And that that's a very, very common tactic with people Mm -hmm. that are in abusive relationships and the text messaging. um, I I used to call it terror by text. I don't know if Mm. I wrote that in the book. Maybe I don't remember you saying that, but yeah, it's exactly what it was, what it is. Oh, I, I didn't even write it. I mean, I wrote a sliver of what actually happened. If I had told you the entire like account and all the details, like it, the editor and I sat down and he said, people aren't going to believe a lot of this. Right. Mm, like, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I, I needed to perk people's interest enough that if somebody is a victim of and they call it domestic terrorism or or, um, or even a perpetrator, that it would be enough. Maybe the perpetrator would think, hey, I am actually doing that and that's not OK. But the victim would actually sort of become more aware because I didn't even realize realize what I was in until I walked away from it. And I started to become educated about Mm -hmm. the um, reality of the situation. Like the text messages were uh, like to this day, Mark, when I hear a phone and if I'm a little bit off, 
I'll jump, right? And mm-hmm. I'll go to that place like, oh my God, right? You know, where I'll almost instantly have to go to the washroom. Like it's just, and that is not unusual. Everybody that is in a, a abusive relationship with the reality of technology, they can't have their phones vibrate or, or um, alert them. And if they do, and they're agitated, it's almost an instant sign that I know that that person's in a highly controlling relationship, right? Mm, mm-hmm. But they're not listening to you, they're on their phone, and they'll say, sorry, sorry, you know, I'm having to, to just deal with something right, right. now. And like, I remember one trip where I went to, um, it was a girl's trip, and George was terrorizing me. And, you know, we were having a fun girls trip. It was uh, in the evening and I, I can't remember what happened, but he was probably drinking. I, it was the most benign thing we were fighting about, but the girls thought it would be funny because I had my Blackberry at the time, mm-hmm. always, you know, always in my hand. And they thought it would be funny if they hit it. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't respond to him right away, I would get in shit. And mm-hmm. I, like, I was doing everything I could not to lose it and play along. Like it was funny. Right. You know, but I like they had no idea what the repercussions were going to be. So they all went to bed and I had to stay up till four in the morning. Oh, my God. The, yeah. And, you know, they thought it was hilarious and they still talked about, oh, my God, you're totally addicted to your phone. Well, no, I, mm-hmm. I was addicted to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to this cycle that I couldn't get out of and I was not aware of. And if you had asked me if that was abuse, I would have said no. Oh, really? Yeah. At that time, I just didn't understand it. Right. You just saw it as like a married couple quibbling over um, stupid things or, or how did you internalize it? Okay. Well, this is where, if you're, this is where I, um, I think it's very great because I knew it was abnormal, but I didn't know how to get out of it. I was trying everything I could in my power, like, becoming a better um, wife or, you know, um, being able to have better communication skills. And I was going to therapist after therapist and none of them were sitting me down and saying, bitch, you got to leave, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> wake the, you know, up. Mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you've got to start smelling the coffee about the reality of the situation. Cause I was, I was going to them and they were trying to make me a better person or trying to get me to make my own decision in whatever mm-hmm. modality I was doing. And it wasn't changing my situation. And so that's why I'm, I'm super um, weary about if you're getting therapy and you're getting the right therapy, because it really wasn't until I went into the Al-Anon circles and not because I did the 12 steps and I had this huge self-revelation and, and, I just, I started to see the patterning and I started to see where people were in similar situations and how they handled it and what they physically looked like mm-hmm. um, being with the person that was abusing them and was an alcoholic. And it's still, I didn't think it was abuse at that time. Right. But I started to see, okay, so if I want to look like this person who finally left and has a peace of mind and has managed to co-parent their couple kids Versus the one that stuck it out, right? Tell, you know, he's on his deathbed now. This is going to be what it's going to look like for mm. me, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't, like, that's why I think it was a real impetus for me to come forward and just say, you know what? Go and talk to people that have walked in your, you know, uh, that have walked the path and they're ahead of you and, mm-hmm. and sort of give you some wisdom. 
And, you know, I don't know how you change that. I don't, I, I think it's educating people, the realities of what mental health, mental illness, wellness, addiction, and domestic violence, and what these conversations are, suicide, you know, that nobody really wants to talk about. Yeah. And it's also interesting. I'm curious about your experiences with psychologists as well. And, you know, and, you know, I, I think you say this in the book and it's something that people should really give strong consideration to around psychologists is that not everyone is going to be right for you as an individual. And in fact, a lot of them probably aren't. And so um, it's really important for folks to um, not assume that just because somebody's a psychologist, um, A, they're going to be able to help you in the way you need, or B, they're the right person to help you for your situation. And so I'm just curious as to why you think it was that you never found a person to forthrightly tell you what you needed to hear, like from a professional perspective. Because I think the ones that deal with domestic violence or trauma, um, uh, generational trauma, I think they're the ones that are working with the ones that are are in the shelters or there, mm. there's a higher degree of, um, of urgency in the area of work that they do. And quite frankly, you know, their expertise, maybe they're not, there aren't a lot that uh, um, just do it from sort of the, the um, couch, you know, paying right. two to $500 a session that and can afford it to that really focus on that because I don't think a lot of people realize they're in a situation like that and um, feel the need to get out or feel like it's their problem or that's the reality of the problem too. So, I mean, getting back, that's kind of like, it's, it's packed into a lot, but we need to have a higher degree of governing standards to what they do. And it, and it can't be like, you know, dial up a therapist and have 15 modalities under the sun that they mm-hmm. deal with, like grieving LGBTQ2+, you know, that right. uh, violence and, you know, early childhood and, and like everything, like there needs to be a focus and they have to be sort of um, standby what they do in their practice. Yes. We don't have yeah. that. No, yeah. no. And yeah, it's interesting in Alberta too, because they, in different provinces, I think, I think in British Columbia, you need to have a master's degree to do any sort of um, counseling. Uh, in Alberta, they they change the the requirements uh, for mental health therapists so that they only needed an undergraduate degree, you know. And, and that was a that was a budgetary decision, you know, based on saving saving money. However, you know, especially when you have such complex um, cases. As you say, the specialization piece is um, something that's critically underfunded, and under, there's there's absolutely no access for it. Like you mentioned, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is um, a type of therapy that is very helpful for individuals that have bipolar disorder, like I think George was diagnosed with. And to get DBT treatment, especially through the public healthcare system, is impossible. Um, and so. I think we need to have a real conversation around just what type of resources we're deploying, whether we're deploying them to, and how we can provide more specialization for people that have 
um, some really long-standing trauma that they need to unpack over a, a period of time, not just a, a, a brief solution-based counseling session. And, and the other thing is with that is everybody is so different. Like there are a lot of people that have had severe trauma and they don't want to go and um, bring it up, but they want to, they want to learn um, functioning, you know, self-regulation skills. And so, so maybe they just need, um, like I'm thinking about a, a friend of mine who it likes to be controlled, like, mm, and, mm-hmm. and she's got to now find, the ability for her to be in a controlling relationship that's somewhat healthy that's not uh, unhealthy, but she doesn't she doesn't like to um you know just sort of be alone and make a lot of choices mm-hmm. and she had childhood trauma and she went to therapists so that was overwhelming for her and the thing that really spoke to her was angel readings and you know what she's in a much better healthier controlling relationship and she's done it through these angel readings and and I mean, there's no governing standards around that, but I, what I had to, I had to wrap my head around is that she doesn't have to go through the system. Like mm-hmm. she's in a, in a somewhat healthy functioning place and, you know, that's her recovery, right? What, what are, what are angel readings? Are they just what they sound like <laughs> or what, 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 what exactly is it? Well, I don't know. I mean, honestly, like, you know how we talked about that poem, right? Like, right. I just got to the point where the beauty about Al-Anon was you just, you almost put your hands up and you say, okay, like over to you, right? It's like, it's out of my control, but there's something that's like the sweet spot. As soon as you give that up, you give out that you have any control over the situation. It's kind of really liberating. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to angel readings, um, you know, I think that she was so, so, um, taxed by the expectations of her, um, you know, figuring out where she came from and how her childhood was so just dysfunctional and that she had to, you know, be autonomous. And, and, you know, she was, she was a professional woman. Like she, you Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. made a lot of money. She, you would never know this about her, but there was something about, I think, completely giving it up to something that was just so nebulous and that mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. angels were advising her and telling her and, you know, getting messages from her, you know, past mm-hmm. uh, relatives. And it was giving her the ability to just take her to where she needed to be to, um, you know, be in a healthier place. And, and I, like she taught me a lot about not having judgment around that. Yeah, no, okay, so I, angel readings are exactly what they sound like they are. And in, in, many, in many ways, I mean, that's that's no different than using religion as a psychological tool for um, salvation or for, um, if you sin, it's, it's, just, it's really the same concept in many respects as a higher power that's guiding you. Um, and But it's not obviously based on the medical model. However, I mean, we could talk about that too. And I think, you know, we were talking before we started about whether or not you should be on this podcast. And I even, you know, if I'm being honest with you, when we ran into each other in Red Deer or you were on a trip with a number of individuals talking about different, talking with different uh, 
charitable organizations doing work in the health and social sector. And you kept on saying to me, like, I'm not really sure why I'm here or I'm not really sure why I'm here. And you also said, you know, I'm not sure if I should be on your podcast because there's all these quote unquote experts. But my, my, my perspective on that is twofold. One, um, there are a lot of experts out there, but, everybody says the mental health care system is broken. So what exactly are experts experts in? That's one. And then two, people that have the lived experience um, and have actually gone through hell with psychological hell, but then also had to try to navigate the healthcare system, have a much more nuanced and on the ground understanding of what may work, what doesn't work, and can provide insights that experts will never be able to provide. And so I think you sell yourself short when you when you speak like that, because I, I don't think you realize how powerful your lived experience is and how... Um, experts are interesting to talk to because they know a lot about a little, but they don't know a lot about necessarily how to navigate the life you've navigated. Well, yeah, thanks. That's, I mean, you say a lot and you could almost like leave it, leave it at that. Don't even add anything about it. But, but like, I, I think at the end of the day, if you get like, and everybody talks about this, if you get a cancer diagnosis or you break a bone, there is a progression. Like you go to the hospital and they know exactly where you have to go, what you have to do, what your treatment is and you know, what your recovery will be. And it's not as clearly laid out mm-hmm. with um, mental illness. And so this has been something that's been arbitrary. It's been changing. They understand now there's this continuum and that people can, get help, you know, earlier on, later on, that there's no, there's nothing that's definitive in this world. And so you're right. Um, I think that the people with lived experience, they have a better idea than a lot of people that are, you know, they're, um, they have, uh, they're doing the work with the people and they don't necessarily entirely understand, like they may Mm -hmm. understand one area of it and are advancing medicine in that area. But I think at the end of the day, you know, you want to have your dignity and you want to have your independence, however that looks. And like I said, I mean, that's that's different for everyone. When I went into the system the first time with George, we were separated and I was clearly aware of the fact that we had EMS and we had uh, law and we had police, we had uh, the healthcare, we had nurses, we had doctors around us and I was separated. He was separated and uh, they came and they talked to me and I, you know, I hadn't even attempted suicide, but I felt like I was a bad person because Mm. I was involved with it. Plus I was a mother. I was married to this person who had attempted suicide. I couldn't imagine what George was thinking at that point, but I had no means of communication to my kids and my parents and his parents who were all waiting and I, we were separated because they they needed to see if I was somehow complicit in his attempt. Mm-hmm. And then 
and then, you know, we waited for probably a whole day before I could go in there and, and he was in high observation rooms. Like, I don't know if you've ever, ever um, had the opportunity to watch someone that is in high observation room in, in an emergency. Like it's, mm-hmm. it needs to change. It, it just, it's awful because your dignities are completely, um, you, you know, diminished. And mm-hmm. that's with everyone that's experiencing it, not just the person that, that had the suicide. And, uh, you know, there's a waiting process to see what are you going to do? Is there, are there, is there space available? And, you know, you're just, you're crossing your fingers and you're, you're doing whatever you can. Like at this point, this is why I start to think there might be a higher power (laughs) because all you have is the option to just kind of pray, you know, Mm -hmm. there's, there's, or wait the next time it happened. And so, you know, he gets admitted or whatever, he comes out the next time it happens. I go to the other side of the waiting room and this is Christmas day. And they're like, Oh no, you can go in. And it's like, what, you know, like, cause that wasn't the experience we'd had last time. Mm-hmm. So I've got my phone. I'm texting my brother who's a physician and he's married to an emergency physician. And I'm like, what, what the hell's going on? Right. Like they haven't even questioned me. And, and, um, my sister-in-law goes, oh no, they've changed the hospital system. Now they know that even if, if there's abuse going on, or they know that if uh, whatever it is, if there's a mental health crisis, that family members can be around that person because it calms them down mm-hmm. no matter how, how they come to emergency. So he was not happy with me, but I was there and everybody had a higher degree of, of, um, communication, calm, our dignities were lifted. There was way more hope in that situation. And that cost the system zero dollars mm-hmm. mm-hmm. going in. And, and so I just, I think me telling that to the healthcare professionals and the experts, I think is, it's really, um, it's how we can and why I try and encourage people when like right before you, I did the um, podcast with Jeb Fink. And I keep saying, you you need to come forward with your story because you really have a lot that you could inform people with the system. So you're absolutely right. But there it's, it's, it's a hard and they're tough conversations to have because people aren't comfortable with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, sometimes when you're in the system as a administrator, executive or worker, you're so institutionalize yourself by what the outcome metrics are and therefore it's hard for folks that are in the system to change the system and so i've always been a big advocate or proponent of trying to make collective impact action through um other means and ways that are are helpful and healthy to the system but that's that's a huge undertaking in and of itself, and I know that's what your your mission is now. Also, um, I guess talking about your children. So your children are now um, all in their twenties. Is that twenty one, twenty? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're um, John Carter and Isla. Yeah, and so. How, I, I know you talked about Isla a little bit at the end of the book and just uh, she had a, a poem that was um, written and that was quite beautiful. How, 
how how do they now reflect on their childhood and how do you think that's impacted them or how yeah how how is it has it impacted them each differently and how how do you how do you all reflect on the last 20 25 years well i think it's it's given them um there's a lot of good and bad that comes with it and and i think i tend to focus on the good and when george did pass i literally sat them down and said you know we can be a victim or we can be a survivor and uh you know i'm not gonna choose to be a victim in all of this i'm i'm going to choose to use our experience in order to um, make our days going forward the best they can be. And uh, they, they both tried to, oh, they both, they all tried to take that on. Uh, they're, they've got great uh, uh, hypervigilant skills. I mean, some of them are more equipped than others. Obviously as kids, they're all different. I think the, the boys, um, you know, they've had to learn uh, how to, navigate their adulthood, not having a father, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to have to answer or open their eyes to the realities of their expectation of being male and, and what's put on them just, you know, from a masculine viewpoint and, and the constructs of patriarchy that we have a lot of conversations about in the house now that I didn't even understand after George passed. And once, you know, you start to uncover it, you can't not see it. And mm-hmm. it's like all around you. And then, you know, Isla, who she was basically, you know, sort of up and coming, like right in my shadow. And now to look at life um, more autonomously and more successfully and having those skills too, but understanding it from that lens. And, I, you know, the kids the kids will work on themselves when uh, they're ready to, and they have like, you know, they go through ebbs and flows, I think like we all do. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think I personally think they've seen it. They were there. They encouraged me to talk about it, to come forward. They, um, you know, they aren't angry. And they, sometimes they do go through little pockets of anger, but it's, it's just, um, I encourage as much openness and I encourage as much growth as I can in this Mm -hmm. environment. But I mean, quite frankly, it was a shitty childhood for them. You know, there's no other way to say it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, yeah, there's so many, so many stories that we could go into, but I I do encourage people to to read some of the the details because it's, like I said, it's it's quite, it's quite jarring um, as a father to have, I've read, read that. Um, but that poem, I don't know, just just on that, the one that you about, that's a Marianne Williamson, and and I just you know I think this whole podcast I've talked about the um, intimate partner abuse, terrorism, whatever you want to. Those texts, those are so common. Like though, it's just so typical, but. There were moments where George had really, really good qualities, and mm-hmm. I, I try not to completely erase them. Um, and that poem is one thing that I would send to him. It's written by Miriam Williamson, um, and it just it seemed to really, if it was going to draw out 
or calm out anything for some reason it spoke to him and I mm. think it was just because of the fact that he he wanted to be great and he he the farther away he got from that with his mental illness and with his addiction um the harder it was for him to to harness that what what do you think it was about his psychological profile that and I, I don't know this is actually probably more common than than not in high achievers where you can be a super high achiever but still feel inadequate and that never goes away and so like the poem I'm just going to read it because it's my favorite poem. That uh, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is in our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your plane small does not serve the, the world. And I, yeah, when I first read that, I mean, at the time I was a... Um, the time I was very, very much an atheist. And so as soon as I saw the word God, I was like, oh no. But then I changed it to, you're a child of the universe. So, um, but now I've kind of come to terms with that word. But, but what, yeah, like, why, why do you think that resonated with him? Like, to put his insecurities at ease when he was already, you know, the owner of an NHL team, the governor um, of, of the NHL, a governor of the NHL started two investment banks, sold one for $140 million. What What is it about that personality profile? And I've seen it all the time. I'm just curious what your thoughts are that make them so successful yet so unfulfilled and insecure. Well, I think that this goes down to – I mean, people would say it was he had a lack of confidence, self-confidence, and he definitely did. But I mean, they've done a ton of um, a ton of work on motivation in the intrinsic and extrinsic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, what motivates somebody. And George, from an early age, learned that uh, the more accolades and intention he got, it, it was um, sort of showboating and public stuff. And and the more he did, the more um, positive reinforcement he got. Mm. But um, there was never really a foundation built for who he was and how to cultivate that. And, and um, you know, he was around reinforcement that was intermittent. And what I learned in my own self-discovery was that if you are in a, a consistently abusive, um, you know, style where a parent is consistently abusive, like, say physically drinks mm-hmm. on the weekend and abuses as opposed to, you know, emotionally sort of up and down and you can never predict it. It's better to be in that um, predictable abuse than it is to be in an emotional one where you never know if you're going to get good or bad or whatever. So he built um, himself on a real unstable um, emotional foundation mm-hmm. and that everything good he did didn't, um, it didn't fill up who George was. And so I think that, it, you know, when he was doing those things to get, make himself feel good, whatever it was, like getting that high mm-hmm. um, achieving things or, you know, having fun or whatever dopamine button he was hitting, there was never an internal, um, you know, bank that he was filling up at that point. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's the, 
yeah, that's the, that's the addiction and pulsivity side where, um, and like, I think it was the quote in the book around perception is everything. And that was kind of, um, I guess, maybe imbued as part of childhood, like things are, that's, you know, the root of a lot of these, a lot of these things. But um, I found a quote that you, you had about yourself. Interesting. Um, And then I started to question, maybe that's why you pick up the phone when I call. Um, You said that psychologically healthy people bore me. And um, (laughs) (laughs) that's funny. And um, I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. I, first I thought, I mean, I don't even know if I could point out somebody I know who's like fully psychologically healthy, but um, I'm probably the same as you that um, psychologically healthy people bore me, but what, what do you think that's from? Well, for, for me, um, you know, from the enabling or being the partner of someone like that, that I, I got a hydroviria fulfillment feeling, giving some self-value and in, in saving. And, uh, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you know, the, the quote or the saying from Alan on, um, which you will love, but it's like how big of you to play God. Mm. And like, I always had all the uh, answers or I was always trying to solve all the problems. And as soon as I let go of doing that, like it was a major, major power change Mm. with us. And he, he was still controlling, but he was used to me dancing around him and trying to make it better. And, and I really wasn't doing anything, but he, he started to realize he was kind of losing control and it not necessarily in a good way, Mm. but um, I was realizing if it was as simple as that, um, you know, not trying to, not feeling fulfillment in um, being around trauma and drama and gossip and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, people that that have unpredictable behaviors. As soon as I started to make boundaries around that, and I was talking about this earlier today, like, quite frankly, it kind of got boring, too. And I realized there's, there is kind of a, a sweet spot, like, um, that you... You, there is um, some sort of capital in um, having a closeness and sharing, sharing, uh, you know, vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. But you know, you have to be mindful of what's helping, what's not. And I think I had no screen and I had mm-hmm. no ability to, mm-hmm. to be able to do that. But yeah. I, you know, I do like people that have had, um, you know, they have, they have the ability to really be honest and talk and, you know, having more sort of animated conversations. And that's what I enjoy mm-hmm. talking to you. Um, so I got to go back to that quote, cause it's going to stay with me. Um, <laughs> but so that would, that's a, that's a sarcastic quote. How big of you to play God meeting like, cause I, I have the same complex or I think I went through the same not the same as you, obviously, but a similar journey where I thought I was doing such a heroic thing by trying to be so helpful to everybody who had problems that had nothing to do with me. And I would insert myself in situations where I, it was, it wasn't my place to insert myself. And I, I was doing it more out of a, it was really more out of narcissism in a way 
and and also maybe the addiction to feeling um like you've helped somebody but a combination of those two things and and so i've i've been i've worked on that quite a bit myself in terms of um who i guess the question i i would frame it as is who are you to play god in someone else's life and so is that is that what the alanon is that what that taught you is that am i accurate in that description oh yeah and yeah, yeah. and okay that's why going back to the therapy, like that, you know, Elanon costs nothing, but there are some just basic fundamental um, rules that you can follow that are just so much healthier. Like another saying is an expectation is a premeditated um, um, resentment. And like I would have this expectation that George had to be a certain way. And as soon as I let go of that, there was a lot of liberties with that. So I just, I, I think um, because there's this code of silence around AA and Al-Anon, mm-hmm. having these discussions of um, showing the relevance of why these things have been around forever. And if you mm-hmm. can go in there and not embrace it, um, it'd like be scared off because they say God and they have some pretty archaic um, notions in it, but just take it for how it might help you a little bit more than, than, um, you know, use those resources because there is a lot out there and we just need to bring all of that forward. That is, um, how, how big of you to play God? I have to get that right. That's what it, and that taught you. Yeah. Well, that's, that's better than anything that if it's different, I I don't want it to change. And then the other quote, which I've never heard before, but it's just, I think absolutely, um, brilliant that I need to, uh, an expectation is a premeditated re- resentment. That's just like, it's so, it's so true. It is so true. Um, and yeah, I think that's something that everybody, no matter who you are, can really think of that. Like that's a takeaway. Well, I, I mean, I wake up every day and I, I do my gratitude, you know, I'm what I'm grateful for. And it's always been sort of an exercise that I've had to do to ground myself. Um, I take five, 10 minutes out of my day to reset myself. And um, I, I thank, like, I thank George, I thank my family, his family for getting me to where I am to give me some purpose because I remember being asked, you know, what does Karen want to do? Who is Karen? When mm-hmm. I was, you know, 10 years back and I would want to cry. Like I, like, and it wasn't because I was sad. It was because I actually didn't know. And mm-hmm. when people would say, what's your goals? And I would think, oh my God. And it's because I had so much more going on that I didn't understand what was going on. And I was just fighting to keep my head above water. And, and so I am grateful that I have purpose. I'm being able to um, advocate to try and make the system better and try and to make it easier to find help and to try and make it more readily understood. Um, and then the next 20 years, hopefully to see outcomes attached to that, that, you know, I can go and think, wow, like, you know, two weeks ago as I was part of a corrosive control conference that thankfully to COVID we had, it was global. We had people all around the world Um, and that I was a part of that and I was a voice in it and I actually, you know, contributed to it. I would never in a a million years thought I could do something like that, but that I can do more of that and raise awareness and, and just see legislative change and 
see, you know, people being sort of more readily um, educated and aware and having these discussions more. And so, so do you feel like this is now your, your life's calling? Yeah. Yeah. And what, whatever, like I try and I, I mean, for me, uh, there's so many areas that I want to go into to improve because there's so many areas to improve and I try and focus on, you know, the city of Calgary and the mental health and addiction framework or domestic violence, courts of control, whatever it is. But yeah, I just, I think any conversation you have and any networking ability you have, it has the ability to really have cascading mm. um, positive impact. Yeah. I, and on that note, um, like I, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, um, we're all, we're all a noted in network and, um, you know, I think it was, I can't remember who said this, but if you know a thousand people, you're one person away from a million people and two people away from a billion people. And so if you can have a positive influence um, on one person, you're not just having a positive influence on one person. You're having a positive influence potentially on um, an order of magnitude larger than that with through that their network. And if it's 10 people, it's 10,000 people. And, and so even if this conversation reaches one um, woman, one man, and it pushes them to take a step in a direction to lead a healthier life, um, that's not just one woman or one man. That's That has ripple cascading effects, as you said, um, across time. So um, I, I am with you on that 100%. But it's certainly... Um, you know, and I guess for me personally, what, you know, not to go into my lived experience, but it's also, I find it intellectually interesting because it is maybe the most complex problem to tackle simply because there's so many um, interrelated factors that go into, you know, why did George end up the way he was, you know? And there's a billion different things that attributed to that. And not, I, I started, I'm starting to get into the butterfly effect now in these podcasts somehow. But, you know, the butterfly effect, how like one thing can change the course of history. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to your point about, you know, less judgment, more conversation, more understanding, you know, I think those can have cascading effects as well that aren't related specifically to do with, you know, domestic violence or mental illness, but even just being open to dialogue with people you disagree with um, is, is I think, what we need more of in our, in our culture today. But um, I want to leave you with a quote because I know I'm now an hour and 16 minutes, which is <laughs> four, 46 minutes over your recommended um, optimal podcast time. Um, Maybe you've heard this quote before, but I want to know if if you believe this to be you. Um, are you familiar with um, Nassim Taleb and the concept of anti fragility? I've heard of it. I I don't. I'm not an oh, expert. Uh, okay. Well, um, I very much believe in this, and I very much believe this is you, uh, and you know a lot of other people I've that have been on this podcast. Uh, share their story of lived experience as well. You know, people talk all the time about 
the notion of resilience and resilience is being able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. But Taleb uh, espouses a different concept, which is um, anti-fragility. And um, it's, uh, it means, so I'll just read this as a quote. Some things benefit from shocks. They thrive and grow and expose to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stressors, and love adventure, risk, and uncertainty. Yet in spite of the ubiquity of the phenomenon, there is no word for the exact opposite of fragile. Let us call it anti-fragile. Anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. And so I just wanted to leave you with that and say that I think you are the definition of anti-fragility, not simply resilience, because I think despite um, what was a tremendously challenging period in your life that you've become... um, a very strong individual who is going to continue to do very important things, I think, for our community and society around mental health. So thank you for that. And thank you for for taking the time to talk to me today. Mark, thank you so much. I think that we'll have to start a new new hashtag and it could be anti-fragility Karens. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll leave it on that. Okay, well, that's... That might be an oxymoron, though. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't. I can't. I can't get into the um. No, don't the, get into the, the Karen piece right now. We'll do a Karen podcast. That's thirty-five minutes later on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you for your time, and it was lovely seeing you. And I'm glad you're doing well. And uh, look forward to seeing you again in person soon. Okay. Thank you. Keep spreading the good words. You're doing an awesome job. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.